So do you mind just jumping straight into it? Yeah, let's go for it. Prince Wilson, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. You are a fairly recent developer experience engineer hire at Netlify, which is very exciting. And this episode won't be going out for a bit, but as of yesterday, Netlify just raised a huge chunk of change, over $100 million Series D. I think you're now officially a unicorn company, over a billion dollars, which is super exciting. So congrats. Thank you. Why don't you let our listeners know kind of who you are, where you're coming from, and what you do. I work as a developer experience engineer. So a lot of the people you get to see at the company who are helping make sure that the experience with deploying on the web is good using Netlify. My specific function is I work on what is known as the templates team, making sure to spend a lot of time in the open source ecosystem, seeing how are the other tools out there supporting Netlify, as well as figuring out how can I best support community at large? How do I use my job to make sure I'm helping the ecosystem as opposed to just doing my job to benefit only Netlify. Outside of developer experience engineering, I write Rust code. You're also a prolific streamer as well. This is how I think I first kind of became aware of you is I hang out a lot in this whole Twitch dev world and you stream yourself, you hang out in the chats of other people's streams. It's just such a really wonderful community of people who are doing this, at least the ones I hang out with. And I've really enjoyed getting to hang out on yours where you're doing Rust because I have always been interested in Rust. We've talked about Rust a handful of times on the show, but I think I've written maybe two or three lines of Rust code, like just kind of going through the, the Rust beginners book and just doing the first like chapter or two. But we're definitely going to get into that. We'll get into streaming, but I'd like to get a little more of your background, especially because I think it's really cool that you used to teach at a boot camp. I'd be curious how you got involved in that, if you were a boot camp person yourself or if you learned to code somewhere else and how that all came together. I always love talking about this. So my very first experience of coding is actually in university. So I went to study computer science. But my very first semester in university, I had my professor tell me that you should consider switching careers. Very bold statements receive in the very first chunk of your journey starting. That just blows my mind as a teacher that any teacher would ever say that to a student. I think their intention could have been well, but how I received it and how it was said to me made it seem like an egregious thing. I took it with stride and I was like, I want to change that course, change that path. And I very much found my rhythm, my stride, starting with hackathons as well. And that kind of got me into doing developer relations work as well as software engineering work. From there, I actually switched and went into teaching at a boot camp. And that monumental initial experience is something I wanted to make sure that other people did never had to experience where people felt like they couldn't be a participant into learning software development. Because there's no like real barrier beyond learning how to do the coding bits. And then you have to build up further. But I wanted to show people that you can do these things. There's tools and experiences that you can get from this. And it doesn't have to be like you work at a fang company, a Facebook, an Apple, an Amazon, any of these types of companies. There are many companies that are working with technology and it's important for us to have these rich, experienced people being a participant into those industries. Yeah, I've seen so many people, so many different backgrounds and races, genders, everything get into coding. And to me, I always say the only requirement is you got to work hard and you got to want it. It's a ton of work to learn to code, but there's no reason that anyone is inherently unable to do it, you know? And so that's really great. And I think that's such an awesome kind of thing. And for you, I know on your stream, you're like so positive. Like you're just like a very, very positive person. And I think that's where a lot of DevRel people who are like really good at the 
job, they have to like exude that positivity because they're trying to bring people in. They're not trying to push people away, you know? And if you're really aggro and you're like, ah, I'm the best coder and everyone else sucks, it's like, no one wants to be around <laughs> that person. You really got to bring people in, help lift them up. And I think you like do such a good job of that. I appreciate you saying that. And I think very much showing who I am is something that's important to me being very authentic. Authentically, I am a fairly positive person. I think a lot about showing people that the space is welcoming because I think when you see that kind of behavior, you emulate that behavior as well. There's some law of attraction, I think, that is you bring positive energy into the world, positive energy comes back to you. And I think a lot about how when you do that, that helps other people also recognize like what are understood behaviors, what's appropriate in the spaces. And that's one of the reasons why I think developer relations is very critical to a lot of companies because it shows you what is the understood norms of your communities as well. Yeah, I know a lot of people who listen to this show are interested in companies like Netlify and would probably want to work at a company like Netlify. So I would be curious, as much as you're comfortable sharing, how you got the role in terms of did you apply? Did someone reach out to you? Did you already have connections there? Like, how did that happen? I did have somebody reach out to me as far as joining onto the developer experience team. I got to meet with the team. I got to understand what are their pursuits as well as like, how does it all align with Netlify? The biggest things that I learned over the course of time is figuring out how to make sure I'm presenting what I want to be seen as. That sounds like I'm putting a performance on, but that's not really what I mean. It's more of part of developer experience work is really thinking about like, what are the skills I need to be showing to people that I can do that work? And part of that is creating content. That part of that is creating blog posts, videos, being a community member in the spaces that I want to be. Those are the things that I was already doing as a full-time engineer anyway. That's kind of what led me into being into developer experience. And I've had many people talk to me about, oh, do you want to do this developer experience role. And at first, I actually thought maybe I don't want to do that work again. For a lot of people, it's very much looks like, ah, you just become like an influencer. And like, that is not actually what it is. That is very much not the work that goes in. And I don't want to mislead people like, ah, it's all like sunshine and rainbows. I very much want to make sure that we're thinking about how do we shepherd communities into getting them to do what they want to be doing. If our goal is to help the ecosystem, especially at Netlify, like we care about the web, we should be thinking about how do we enable them to do that work? How do we empower them to do that work. And we're just there to give them the tools. They can do all the work themselves. That I think is exemplary of what a developer experience person is. When you say developer experience, you're not necessarily just talking about coding actual things for the developers. You're also talking about how the developers understand the product, how they use the product. It's all them things like you don't get caught up on as like you just disappear and you're like, surely everybody knows how to do these things. Like one click deploying to Netlify is very different to clicking on GitHub, finding your repo, clicking the repo, putting the environmental variables. It's a completely different experience. And that first time you get in and up and running in five minutes and it's great and you've learned how to use the platform. But do you truly know how to use the platform? And do you know how to take full range of the platform? Because there's so many things like different personalities do different things. Like for me, whenever I start using a piece of software, I tend to like always look at the settings first and like check everything and be like, okay, I've looked at every page. I understand what I can do, what I can't do. But some people are far much more discoveries. They won't look at the areas they don't need to until they need it. So it's that thing of like, how do we teach people? But then I think the second area that can be really underrated sometimes is upgrading things, adding new features. It's a big picture. It's all about the big picture. 
I love that you bring these sorts of things up, right? It's like, this goes back to something I really appreciated about being a teacher is thinking a lot about what are the mechanisms that we put in front of people to show them their path. You mentioned like there's kind of different modes that people go through when they're like doing something, whether it's discovery mode or they're kind of going through the happy path. And I think a lot about how those kind of skills from being a teacher really plays into figuring out that research part of like, how do you create the right pathways for people? Because there shouldn't be one direction that every user goes through as the only way to experience a product. I think that actually can be harmful in a lot of ways because of the fact that like they don't know where they might need to go when something goes wrong. And this happens to any product because at the end of the day, you need to be able to showcase how to give them the control because maybe the one day they want to decide to migrate and they shouldn't have that all to be a black box. There was something also you mentioned like features, hidden features or new features that come through. I think a lot about how do you showcase those things. And a lot of experiences that come through apps today are really built around like game development, surprisingly enough. A lot of the hints that you get through a UI are all designed because of game development, where they kind of think about how do you tell a user without telling a user how to do something? I think a lot, how do you create those kinds of experiences within an application where it's not just like, oh, I'm kind of like just digging through to find out what the new features are. Like there should be ways of telling you like, ah, this is a thing, but giving you the tool to use it as however you would like. Because at the end of the day, the prescriptive nature might limit them as opposed to giving them the unlimited potential. This is something that is great as like GitHub is there the absolute worst about like letting you know what you can actually do with GitHub. I cannot tell you how many times I've like discovered some brand new feature or thing that's on GitHub that has been there for years and I had no idea. Like you can deploy apps, like you can deploy entire servers on GitHub. I had no idea that you could do that for the longest time. That's something that I know Nellify has done a great job with because they've kept it fairly minimal, at least for most of the time they've been around in terms like where they give you the ability to do a static site and like some functions and then as they added things on like identity and analytics it was always like a top level thing on the tab bar and so I've always appreciated just how they keep it clean they keep it simple when they do add something it's just like there and you can see it I'd be curious I'm sure you were a user of Netlify before you started working there and so what did you appreciate about the product itself that made you want to work there one of the things that really blew me away. Having dealt with making my own backend stuff before, I felt really empowered by just the the use of functions. Netlify functions that are their serverless functions. And I think a lot about how much potential that leaves for people because I there's I don't know. I am just a human being, right? Like I am just one person. There's many other human beings that use this technology. And it's just so fascinating to see how people can use it in a variety of different ways. And their use cases are just endless. And I think that's what really inspired me. That's exactly what I want developer tooling to be is allowing people to build out what they need to do without having to get in their way. And I think not that full-fledged backend applications are bad or anything. It's more like this is another dimension. This is like a whole vector of implementations that people haven't gotten to experience. And I'm really excited also for like tools like edge handlers. I forget, are they also called edge handlers in Vercel? They're called middleware. This was next middleware and it's Vercel edge functions and then Netlify edge handlers. They're essentially the same thing, but Vercel calls them edge functions, Netlify calls them edge handlers. And I know that they're on top of the Cloudflare workers. Correct, yeah. Whereas Netlify built a crazy custom Dino thing for theirs, I'm pretty sure. Matt was on a, a podcast and talked about it a little bit that they're they're using Dino for that, which I thought was so cool and like a really interesting use case for that. Yeah, I think that just speaks to where the area of web development's going towards. That is just like really interesting. Like once again, it's a vector of exploration that 
everyone on the web gets to explore. And I think for a lot of companies, they've been so used to having to build everything all out at once and then they like deliver. And I'm really excited for people to be able to not get bogged down by having to wait for processes to be like set up for their teams so that they can start exploring how to build out their products. Like it's getting the proof of concept out of the door for people is something I think that these tools are allowing people to do, which they weren't able to do before. When we had Jason on, he very much said that Netlify is the tool of all tools as like it's the jack of all trades. Like, yes, other cloud providers may do some frameworks better. We like to say we are the tool for all tools. I saw that on your blog, you recently wrote an article about Astro and using Netlify CMS. What's your opinions of Astro? Do you think it's going to go far? Do you think it's one of these future tools that we shouldn't use yet or we should all go straight into it? That's a great question. I don't know where Astro will go. I think that's something I'm actually getting to be more familiar around about how the the ecosystem at large is evolving. Coming in where I saw a lot of stuff with Gatsby and Next, it's been really fascinating to see how other people see this type of problem and figuring out what are they going to do differently. And I think Astro is just very fascinating as its support is to helping all these other frameworks, which I think is not necessarily a new concept, but I like that that's the direction that it's taking. How do we help all these other languages or I guess projects is maybe the better word, view, svelte, all these tools. And that's something I think is a very healthy direction. So that might be the direction that things are heading. IELTS is also another project that is coming out in the, the world as well. When you look at these new projects, how do you decide kind of what you want to invest in and write about and start learning? Like, what do you look for in these projects? Also a great question. Honestly, I like to listen about how people advocate for these projects. I felt the same way when my first like big front end tool that I use was React. And so seeing people talk about like Svelte, for instance, is another one of those dimensions where I was like, why do people like it? And what are the things that make them gravitate towards it? I don't really have anything that's kind of in my head that I use as a checklist to say like, this is the tool that we're all going to go down. But I really like looking at communities of how do they use a tool? What are their ways of expressing how they use that tool? And how does the the people using the project, how do they collaborate with each other? I think that might be from my background being mostly starting in Ruby, where the ecosystem is really thinking about the community at large. I like to see kind of also how does JavaScript trend down that same path? One of the biggest things that really questions and perplexes me about the Jamstack, you pick my favorite three things right now. So that's TypeScript, React, and probably something like Tailwind. And then you think, what's the purpose? What's the outcome? And then you go, oh, I'm going to make a blog or I'm going to make an e-commerce website or I'm going to make a admin dashboard. All three of them use cases are such different uses of the frameworks that are out there. And I think it's such a hard question currently to look at all of them and know which one is the best one for that job, because I think it's really opinionated. Even today with Gatsby and Next.js, both of them have said, we support Shopify. You know, Shopify is, yeah, you know, it's one of our big things. And then Shopify has now said, here's our own version of React. And then you're sitting there going, I need to build a shop front in Shopify. Which version do I use? And there's no simple answer is this is your go-to solution. While yes, you could use any, but it's that thing of like, what's the pros and cons? What's the better one to use? The hardest thing is picking the wrong decision and realizing it too late and then having to migrate it all over from, say, you know, Gatsby to Next or Astro to whatever. Tools like Astro are really showing us how 
easy it is to get as low down as possible. If you're creating a blog, then yeah, Astro is probably going to be really, really helpful going forward because it's so bare bones in the best of ways, if that makes sense. Well, you know, creating a blog in Gatsby now is a bit overkill with its whole GraphQL layer. I think it's honestly comes down to what do people enjoy building with? That's allowing yourself to take that stride. Unless you're thinking in terms of a business, I think that you go back to saying like the trade-off, right? Like it's all about the purpose. That's really what should be deciding what tool you're wanting to be going with. Because at the end of the day, if you're structuring it in a way that allows you to switch things out, that's like the most beneficial kind of pathway as opposed to like locking in and saying like, I can only do it with this particular tool. Maybe that's a bad example given that if you bring up e-commerce, there's only so many choices you can choose. But I think having choice is actually a really good thing and it's healthy for an ecosystem as opposed to the opposite where there's only one particular way. Just because it allows us to have the perspective of what are the types of problems that everybody's having and how do we address those? That's something that's really important when we're thinking about the web as well. No one person is solving one problem alone. They're solving multitudes of types of problems. Having that variety helps so people can also see innovation. That's the reason why I think the front end ecosystem is fascinating to watch. There's so many different types of solutions that are out there that are beneficial for everybody involved because it allows us to all say, here's how we can level up as an ecosystem. An example of that is like jQuery. jQuery's innovation that came out ended up being a foundational layer that's been embedded now to all web browsers. Like when we think of the APIs that came out of it, the same is true when we look at React. We might see a world in which the design choice of JSX might be something that we see foundationally across the web when we think in terms of like maybe, for example, web components. Just like the the syntactical level of what we're seeing, we might see that all over the place. JSX is a really good example. We are now seeing other frameworks start to come out, such as SolidJS, that still uses JSX. And this was one of the main questions to the creator was, why JSX? Why don't you just go use your own thing? Is JSX even a foundational kind of thing, or has everyone just implemented it however they want? And it's good questions, to be fair. My next question is around your job at Netlify, and it's that thing of, like, Netlify as a company doesn't seem to build very specific things to the Netlify platform. Do you think that necessarily hinders the platform or really excels it as in all logic will run everywhere no matter if it's on Netlify or off Netlify? I think that is like the million dollar question. I like that. I think a lot of our things is making sure that we are supporting the ecosystem at large because so many people have such a variety of choice. And then we don't want to say like, we only want you to choose this particular thing. At the end of the day, we want to help support you solving your problem. We don't want to be another problem in your way. And I think that's kind of like the direction and insights that people have as far as like why Netlify goes for supporting all these frameworks. Going back to what I said, it's like when we're thinking in terms of this innovation, when we have all these frameworks, it also kind of gives us this insight of like how can we best help JavaScript continue to move forward as opposed to being a blocker along the way. If Jamstack is an ever-evolving thing that's going to have new solutions out there, staying in only one particular tool might not help us help the JavaScript ecosystem. The only tool that I can think of like, well, that's the only thing that, you know, Netlify really does that nothing else really does. I forgot what it is off the top of my head, but it's the forms. You know how you can just put the form syntax and then it'll be like we'll just capture all the responses that's like the one feature i'm like that is like the only thing that netlify isn't like open on is like that's like it's custom logic behind the scenes to capture all that i think that's really really cool 
not a lot of people know about that. The the whole like form implementation for people that are listening, you can add like a data hyphen Netlify equals true onto your form element. And all of a sudden you have this connection to a form API through Netlify. And on top of that, you can customize it with having like functions that get invoked upon certain actions, submission of a form or deletion. It goes back, here's this problem. We are going to give you a tool to solve that problem. You are still able to use the form as you currently have it, just in a regular old HTML form. And on top of that, you get this Netlify power on top of it. Those are the things that we're trying to figure out. What are the ways that we can help support you doing the work that you're already doing, as opposed to reinventing and creating a new structure where that might end up one day Netlify may not exist, God forbid, knock on wood. But I day we care about you solving your problem and not being a hindrance we want to make sure it's as easy as possible for you to continue to do your work and not be in the way of that work that's one of the biggest things about netlify some of the things you can do on the platform are really really powerful but trying to tell people that you can do them is a long while problem such as the lambda functions it is an abstraction on aws lambda but they don't have to be like a complex whole API. It could just be keeping your keys out of the main environment and just passing it through an API. And I think this area of like, where does these like lambdas and all these things evolve to? I think Remix is giving a really good direction of like, wait, you can do all of this stuff running on like these like adapters. I've not gone into Remix yet, but I know there's a Netlify adapter, a Vercel, an Express. So does that just mean that you plug it in and now it just works on the Netlify cloud? That is ideally the solution, right? Is like you put it in, you make sure that it's working. I think that's an interesting pattern. It's something that I hadn't noticed till I started working at Netlify that this is something that people do where like frameworks and tools will kind of give you these solutions that make sure that your integration with, what's the word I'm looking for? Platform. Platform, thank you. The platform is as seamless as possible. This is one of the things that other platforms also do. Like Vercel is very good at making sure that that also has a thing that happens where there's these integrations with the framework so that way you don't have to do any kind of configuration as opposed to just plugging it in. And that's something I, like I mentioned before is we're paying attention to the ecosystem to make sure that we are supporting everybody without you all having to write a ton of extra work. So that way it just out of the box is good for you. What do you think of these pure code implementations and what I mean by pure code, that's an Aldo term, he likes to use that one, is like the highest abstraction possible. Like integrations, we've seen this with Vercel starting to do it as well, as in a company can integrate into the platform and now open up all of this new functionality, like Shopify's done it. There's a whole, I think they call it Marketplace. I think it's Vercel Marketplace. Does Netlify have such integrations? And when we're talking about pure code, another kind of example, do you know the the CDK on AWS? I think that's close to what Aldo's kind of talking about, the pure code tool, where it's like you're just writing code that is both your project and your infrastructure and like everything kind of together. I think that's kind of what Chris is getting at there. It is. And Anthony can just pull the words out of my head a lot easier. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like an example of that. I'm not certain if that exists. I think one of the examples might be like the build plugins is an example of like Netlify's kind of thought process around that, where there are some integrations where we can make sure that you're just thinking about here's this project, 
here's the like data source that you might care about. We also use this sometimes when we're thinking about in terms of like build steps, when we can abstract away some of the problems that you're wanting to have, but make it so that it's a general source of data where you can use it and take it in regardless of the framework that we have. We have like an example of that similarly with like Shopify, where we have this data source that we're wanting, but we use it across different frameworks. So you don't have to worry about like, how do I make sure that I'm using the right APIs? Yeah, we have a, a steps then Netlify build plugin that's like that for a GraphQL API. Love that. That's what I was trying to get to. The extending of platforms, we're starting to see that as in like more dev tools are coming in, more tools that slot onto the end of the Netlify process or could slot on it in front of it as like data coming to it. And then we're seeing companies also get acquired by Netlify that are helping this of like, is this data at the front of the pipe or at the back of the pipe? For example, we've seen two recently that are at both ends. One graph that's at the beginning, as in we help you aggregate data for your APIs. And then we've seen one at the complete other end that I forgot the company off the top of my head that has been the underlying layer of the customized viewer tool, the preview tool. The deploy previews. Yeah, the collaborative deploy previews. That's the word. Yeah, it's feature peak. Yes, exactly. There was a question. I totally forgot it. (laughs) Was there? I don't know the question. What I'm trying to say is there's a fine balance between open sourcing integrations into the platform and out the platform. And then there's we will make X and Y for the platform for the open source community. There's not really a question. I was just trying to get to topic points to talk about. I did have a question. I was curious now that you're working for Netlify, if there's specific parts of the platform you're like interested in digging into and learning more about that, you know, is an area that you haven't gotten to explore a lot yet. We kind of talked about one of them, which is the build plugins. I, I've never used the build plugins prior to working at Netlify. It's a fascinating concept, kind of thinking more about like, how do we have this conversation around like, what's the right level of abstractions that we want to have? And also like, how do you make it easy for people to do not necessarily all this backend work per se, but more so like, how do you make integrations as easy as possible for everybody? How do you make them in a way that allows us to say like, I just want to write code. I don't want to really think about all the other parts of like, how do I integrate with this API? I just want this one place to get information from and move on. I think it's an interesting concept because of the fact that we're not having to go about having to worry so much of like, oh, it's going to have to look like this forever. The inside can change along the way without having to change the outside. We can move on from the problem. I feel like a lot of the complexities that we used to have are just like, ah, oh, we need to like have a server and do all these things. And like, it must work this way. It's a very fragile glass ball. But now we're seeing a little bit of a difference in that operation. The other one I'm really excited about as far as features on Netlify is the edge handlers. It's something that I have not gotten to play with as much, but I want to because I think it's a really interesting concept when we come down to how do we provide experiences that is very customizable to the way that a person's coming into your platform. It's one of those things when we think about like internationalization or being able to have any kind of different experience based off of your user, edge handlers can provide that by thinking about like where are people and how are you accessing the platform. It's really interesting that we start talking about these things, edge handlers, the build process. Do you find that we're going into the territory where we're having to think, what logic do I need to build myself? And what logic do I need to put in other places? It's like, 
for example, you've just said about internationalization. You're saying, hey, okay, I need to route our customer to the UK website if I'm from the UK and the US website if I'm from the US. And then you think, okay, how do I do that today? Enterprises have many solutions because, you know, enterprises need to. But for a tiny company, you're like, well, that's pretty much impossible for me without going on to like NGINX and everything. And then Netlify comes along and says, we can now do that. And then you go, okay, that's something that you couldn't do before. But you could, it's just the barriers to entry has been so much higher. So do you think we'll see this not molding of like logic of like, as soon as we need to do something, we think, okay, I'm going to host that bit of logic by myself, that bit of logic on Netlify, and that bit of logic in my next app. Honestly, I think that's going to be, that is what we're going to see is that figuring out how do we balance like where to put the logic. I think that is something that will be like the next wave of types of problems that you'll see. And just like you mentioned, like a great example is like a business. At what point am I about to try to scale my operations that in a way that is sizable and relatable? And also how do I make sure to make that information widely disseminated? So I'm not the only person who has that knowledge. When we start thinking in terms of code, it's easier to find something in the code because it's like right where you're doing your development, right? Rather than I putting it only in the platform, imagining if we only put the logic of edge handling, like, ah, put this internationalization information only on Netlify inside of its UI as opposed to putting it right next to its code. I think it's going to be an interesting story of how do we make that documentation clear of like, this is where the resources end up going. I don't know if there is a solution out there that's like very clear to people of like, this is exactly how you should think about a project moving forward. I think that part of education is going to be a fascinating thing to watch where we're going to see like, will people explain the story of the web development process different now? Because it Right now, at least in my mind, when I think of web development, it's still very much like fundamental of HTML, CSS, JavaScript. But I wonder if that story will kind of change when we're thinking at a higher level, when we're thinking about, okay, so how do we put things onto the web? What does that actually look like? I almost think that we need a new classification for like a web developer, as in like a web engineer or a JavaScript engineer. When I always thought of web developer, I thought I'm going to be making PHP themes until the day I die. And like, that's my life. I love the web. And then when I started my own company, I was like, I don't even think I'm a web developer anymore. I write React and like JavaScript and TypeScript all day, but I don't class myself as a web developer anymore because I'm doing like back end, front end, middle. And like when I think of web developer, I think of like, as I said, I'm creating a website. Everything I feel like I build these days is not a website, it's an application. So am I a web developer or am I an application developer that uses the web? And that's the really interesting ground that we're kind of going into with the Jamstack. It's the Jamstack was web developers as in like the front end of the front end. But now we're seeing like the back of the front end. So much more can be done on a static website. When you bring up like this classification, I actually think I agree. Like there, that new kind of classification might be something we end up seeing. And I do think that that's something that people might be seeing more of where people are going to see like, this is the kind of work that you will be doing. You won't necessarily be worrying so much about how does the UI look, but more how does the interactions happen and how do you perform those interactions? How do you manage all of that? I think that is going to be an interesting space to kind of watch out for. I want to say there was a, that conversation, was it from CSS Tricks? Is what comes to my mind where there's a kind of this conversation. I think Chris Coyer was talking about it where there's a kind of two dimensions of the front end, the front of the front end and the back of the front end. The great divide, right? I think is what it was called. Yes. 
I think it's interesting when you put that perspective onto the Jamstack, where there's kind of that layer happening, where you're thinking more of how are these integrations happening, as opposed to like, how is the actual UI being put together? Going back to the original conversation of like this great divide, we are starting to see that with tools. You have Astro there saying, we are the front of the front end and like things like Eleventy that has always been there. And then you have obviously like Gatsby and Next that are now going more to the other end of like, yeah, but you know, you can build a dashboard on this. Like it's a pretty overkill for a blog. And then it's picking the right tool for the right use case. And then the use cases get blurry when there's like how much interaction is needed on such website. Like a shop is not that interactive. But it is. Most people who will listen to the show will know what Rust is. They know it's a programming language. They know supposedly it's awesome and it's fast and it's amazing and it's safe. And like, I should be writing Rust code. Why am I not writing Rust code? Clearly, I'm a failure as a programmer. That's not entirely the perception. Please don't feel that way. (laughs) Yeah, but I know that it's just like it has a lot of hype behind it. And I think for good reason, because people are building awesome stuff with it. So I'd be curious what made you want to learn Rust in the first place and then how you got into it and what advice you would give to people who want to get into it? Excellent set of questions. I think the first thing to talk about is like, how do I get into it? My previous experience, like being in university, we did a lot of low level code with C. Post university, I was like, I never want to write low level code ever again, which was just the bitterness that came back from that experience with my university professor. But I came back and realized that I need to give it a chance. And one of the things I wanted to do is look through like, how does the ecosystem really evolved as far as like selection? I've spent most of my time in web development. I was really interested in seeing like, how has like embedded tooling and all these other tools kind of changed? What are the languages that are out there? And one of the things I came across was Rust. Rust, I was just fascinated by because it kind of said that the time came to me as a better alternative to something like C or C++. And I was like, huh, I have never heard of it. And so I kind of was just looking into it and I really liked how it looked and felt when I started writing it. And I think maybe it comes from seeing a lot of JavaScript and a lot of the people who had gotten the opportunity to work with it had experience in the JavaScript ecosystem. Some of the things as far as how the ecosystem evolved in terms of having a package management system right out of the box, that was something that I thought was really fascinating. That's kind of what enamored me is seeing how they were thinking forwardly, not only in terms of third-party tools, but also how do they want to shepherd the language moving forward? How do we want to make evolutions happen? So like just how the foundational level of rust is managed was something that really caught me the most yeah when somebody says we should write our javascript in rust or have rust write our javascript what do they truly mean because they're two things that are being thrown around a lot right now when it comes to building the tools to build javascript when i think of this particular comment i think what they're asking for is They want reliability in their software. They want to be able to know that the software is going to work as they expect it to, as well as what I think that they want is something that is quick and efficient. I think that's what the comment is trying to lead towards. They want something that they can trust. And a lot of the time, if we talk about the history of JavaScript tooling, a lot of the time it's been built in JavaScript because it's something we're familiar with, we all can contribute to, we want that experience. And I think that the ecosystem at large is starting to kind of think about how do we use other tools? How do we use other languages that are more effective at doing that kind of work, whether it's AST parsing, abstract syntax tree parsing, whether it is just building software for our applications on our desktops. I think that's what they're looking towards. And they're seeing these other tools that are already doing that work and figuring out how do we integrate that with JavaScript. I think that's what I hear it as more than it is using Rust to write JavaScript. 
Yeah, the way I see it, it's using Rust to enable devs to write JavaScript in a way where they don't ever have to think about performance, essentially, or think about some of the higher level stuff that you may not want to have to worry about if you're just writing JavaScript code. And so I think that's great. And so some people are like, oh, Rust is taking over web development. It's like, well, not really. <laughs> like, people are going to be writing probably even more JS with just Rust inside of their tools. And we're already seeing this, like, Prisma is written in Rust. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's been, has been for a while. Yeah, it used to be in Scala, actually, which is kind of funny. That was a huge boondoggle. And they ended up having to migrate away from that. Also didn't know that. Wow. Where do you host your Rust application? Right now, where do I host it? On a digital ocean. Oh yeah, I guess you just run a standard like Ubuntu droplet. The classic. Yeah, it's really nothing special. I've done one one of my streams. So I used to have these NanoLeaf lights on the background that I have here. And I used to run an application that would do communications to my NanoLeaf lights directly on the Raspberry Pi. Instead of directly communicating through my network, you would be communicating to my Raspberry Pi. And it would do all the internet connections that I need to directly to the lights to turn them on, off, switch the colors around. So you can pretty much write Rust anywhere. It even works for embedded code. Say you're a Jamstack developer specifically. Will I see Rust in the next five years? Will I need to write Rust in the next five years? Is that something that I really should think about? I would say you can if you want to, but you probably don't have to. That would be my answer. That's pretty much what I'm thinking as far as my response. My biggest thing I want to talk about is like, there are going to be many languages that come out even past, like even in the next five years. I think there's going to be more languages that come into fruition. Right now, it's an interesting time to see Rust, partially because a lot of tools are being built for the web with Rust. Not even just like the stuff that we're seeing with like Next, but things like Wasm, WebAssembly, is another dimension that we're seeing. Tools like that, I think, are going to sprout up a new wave of languages, I believe. I think that's where it's really going to go is WebAssembly and like what WebAssembly allows us to do. That's where the work's going to happen. I don't think that if you're a Jamstack developer today, you must know how to learn Rust. But if you're a person who is interested in learning more about languages, maybe you've only written JavaScript, I do encourage you to think about learning another programming language so you can experience what other tools are doing. I think a lot of people have only experienced JavaScript or HTML or CSS, all these other types of languages that are out there, and they think in terms of those frameworks. But once you start learning another programming language, your mindset starts to develop new ways of thinking how to solve problems, whether that's a functional type of programming or it's object-oriented type of programming. Once you learn another language, I think those things are really fascinating to dive into. Yeah, Chris was very against that for a while, but I think he started to turn around because he's been going through the process of learning non-React JavaScript frameworks and being like, oh, this is actually like I'm learning a lot and learning another language entirely. It's like that, but to the nth degree. And obviously Chris did other languages in, in college and stuff, but I think it's just so useful to think of programming languages in the abstract. Like what are the conventions of programming itself that are abstracted away from a specific language? When I was in university, I learned C and C++ and C sharp and it burned me. I don't ever want to look at that again. Like, please, never again. It happens a lot. Yeah. I just went with JavaScript and I've lived my life happy in JavaScript land. One of the biggest things that I saw recently, 1Password rewrote, I think, most of their logic in Rust. So they still use Electron apps, but they rewrote most of the logic in Lust. Lust? Rust. 
to be more memory efficient, I think, instead of having it all in JavaScript. Yeah, and I think Discord, they also had an experience where they were rewriting some of their services using Elixir and Rust. Elixir is another programming language out there. That goes back to saying, like, I think we're going to see more tools being built and composed of services that aren't just JavaScript. That isn't to say, like, the winds are changing. Become a Rust developer. Become a Ruby developer. Become an Elixir developer. That is to say that more avenues are opening for everybody. And I think that a lot of people saw the web development as you must only be writing in one type of language. That, I think, allows us to have a conversation about how can we start figuring out what tools we need and how do we build them in the languages that we think about. And I'm glad people are rewriting old code because I did an internship in an insurance company at one point. And one of the things that was really fascinating is how older industries don't rewrite their code. Or it takes much longer for that to happen, that wave of rewriting code. But most critical systems are still having to be maintained in this old code. How are we supposed to bridge the gap at some point if we don't end up trying to rewrite that thing? I think a lot about how are we making sure we're enabling that conversation of what are new softwares or services that we could be building, but also when they're mission critical and they are unreliable, what do we do? <laughs> like, do we just keep them in that language or are we actually going to think of a strategy of how do we migrate them or do something new to them? What are some projects that you're building right now? Some of the projects that I'm working on, I'm working on a Discord bot. I love writing Discord bots now or just like getting to interact with Discord because there's just a lot of fun interactions that you can make. As far as other things that I'm working on, I've been thinking about this idea of like having a web page for my stream that I'm doing that is using edge handlers to kind of give different information about time zones because that's one thing I learned is that you can get like country information and I learned how to figure out the different time zones of countries. Finally, oh, I've learned that time is not one of those things you ever want to deal with. Just letting y'all know it's not a fun time. <laughs> no pun intended. So that would be a site for scheduling and people seeing like when is an upcoming event and something like that. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah, that's essentially what we started building when we first were doing the lunch.dev website for the React Podcast Discord. We wanted to have a way to like have events. And so our first event was like building this events thing with the Levendy. It's a very cool project and it gives you a good sense, like you say, like some technical nitty gritty stuff with dates, but it's also very useful and very practical and will run up against things that you're going to hit in lots of different areas. I'd be curious though to get into the Discord bot because Discord bots is something that if you're in a Discord, you'll see them every now and then, and it's not always clear exactly how to interact with them, like knowing like what the commands are, what the API is. And I think that's because they're very opaque in the sense that like I never really know like who made this Discord bot. Where did it come from? Where do I find Discord bots? So I'd be curious, what are Discord bots? Like what is the code? Where is the code hosted? Like what language is it in? Like what are the actual nuts and bolts mechanics of what goes into these bots? So there's a lot of different tools. Uh, specifically, I can think of only two on the top of my head. I have an API client that I use. So a layer that's basically going to do the API calls for me as opposed to like me directly writing the API calls. One of those is discord.js. And another tool that I'm currently using, I'm using in Rust called Serenity RS. That gives me a Rust wrapper around the Discord API that allows me to make API calls. The structure that it enforces for me also makes it more clear of like this particular function is going to be a command ran against Discord's API as opposed to like for instance, you have like the slash commands inside of Discord where you use the slash in front as opposed to other functions where you can just say whenever a user says this particular string, invoke the function. So that's the affordance of using an API client as opposed to direct 
API calls, which I don't want to write ever. <laughs> like you mentioned, it's kind of opaque of how Discord's API is. It's because there's a lot of little things you have to do to make an API request for Discord by hand. <laughs> Where do you find Discord bots? Every time I've seen it, it's like every Discord bot seems to either be done by one of two people someone just hacking something together for a laugh and like these people that their full-time job is to make these like slack and discord bots and that's all they do and they're super complex with 20 commands that you just need to do slash help to know what they do as far as finding discord bots i think one of the most popular sites is just top.gg that's the one that comes to my mind when people are looking for discord bots because i develop and write my own set of commands sometimes i'm looking on github specifically of like does a bot exist to do this already which is a weird place to go for finding discord bots if you're not a developer but i feel like it's very apt when i'm like how does other people solve this type of problem top.gg has like a it's basically a marketplace of discord bots where you can find other projects and most commonly use like the top ones i think of is like mee6 i actually don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not me6 is probably i thought meep was like the rick and moy character yeah the i'm mr me6 look at me yeah, yeah that's the one i for some reason never made the connection till now that that's what it was a play on but that's like an example of a discord bot that's very commonly integrated into discord for a lot of projects partially because it does a lot of great work with regards to moderation and so that's like the one of the top ones that comes to my mind i'm on my 14 year old brother's discord he has like 20 bots and like my discord has like one and the one i have is literally just github telling me when something's changed on one of my projects and that's like good enough i'm like yep that's good for me it's kind of funny though when you think about that we all thought like chaps would take over the world and would have a discord bot for everything and our generation is like we like them one or two but younger generations are like no i just want to chat to a chatbot all day and get it to tell me everything i want to code for a chatbot i think it goes back to like how do we see our interactions with them and like what do they afford us like for us like we're here to talk to other people and sometimes there's a lot of cool interactions that you can have like some people use chatbots for like pokemon for instance they have like random pokemon game basically within discord and i think that's a way to build community i think that's ultimately what the bot's most beneficial aspect is it's a way to come together as well as the, the space itself like discord yeah i remember being really into pokemon go and there being bots that would tell you where the latest raid was and people would say oh, i'm going to that raid i used to be very into pokemon go not no more i love that for you i have just started actually playing pokemon go just a few months ago and i got obsessed it has been great i'm pretty sure typescript the official typescript discord has their own bot to handle the question and answer because they have like 30 channels don't they to help people specifically get question and answer support and i think the bot helps move all them people around to get the right answers that i think is an example of like how we can see interactions evolving right is that we're seeing more about like how do we create structure and form without having to be the manual work of doing that i think there is a lot of utility in having something that is a little bit more automated so people can find like the right spaces for instance like creating channels or creating threads specifically for people so that way they can have that conversation about i need some support as opposed to like creating only exclusively the culture by consistently showing up as this way i think there's a balancing act sometimes there are cultural things that you need to set in a community to make sure that people do the, the right actions whereas some automation helps to kind of reinforce that behavior as well so bots are basically webhooks. We've seen bots written in, you wrote them in TypeScript, right? Or JavaScript? Written some. 
they pretty much can be wrote in anything. But another like event-based API that you've actually wrote about on your blog was actually connecting Twitch events up to Netlify. Why do that? What's the use case? What's the reasons? One of the things that I had on my stream previously, I had an integration so people could actually interact with my lights that I had in my background. So I had these Nanoleaf lights that were actually activated based off of redemptions on my channel. That was like kind of the inspiration of me to figuring out like how do I use Netlify functions to kind of interact with a physical object. It was a lot of fun to because I did that also on stream where people got to actually see like, okay, this is how you use the Twitch API. This is how you integrate this with like a serverless piece of code. And here's it actually doing something in real life. The reasoning for why I went with a function is because it was easier than me having to figure out how to make a web server to do it. That was really the, the biggest draw for me. And also because I needed to have something on the web to interact with, it was just the one I could do the most quickest. That was English. <laughs> You used it not so necessary for the UI of your stream, but more a background interactivity. I'm pretty sure I read that Learn with Jason's like all of his like UI is done in like React and HTML. And I'm like, I have no clue how you even put a video in HTML and React and you put it all together. Like that's a bit too far for me for today, but I know you can do it. <laughs> This is a bit of a, a segue to the streaming stuff because you are building stuff on streams. I'd be curious, what are you building and why did you choose to build those on streams specifically? So right now I'm working on building a Discord bot using Rust. It's to just play a, a board game known as Codenames where there's two teams and their like goal is to beat the other team based off of a guessing word game. I just decided to do that on stream partially because I want an excuse to be writing Rust. I don't write Rust as my full-time job yet. And one of the things I want to do is make sure I'm constantly using this as a space to one show learning. Like I don't say I am the Rust expert. Come to me for Rust knowledge. But more so I want to show it as it's not the scary tool that you might be hearing. It's actually once you understand how to speak Rust or like write Rust, you're able to do it too. That's kind of why I decided to write it on stream is I want to show people one, it's okay to make mistakes, but mostly it's a space for us to all learn together. Yeah, I love that. And I think writing a Discord bot on Twitch in Rust is the most 2021 dev thing that you could ever possibly do. So <laughs> yes, good job. You hit the zenith. <laughs> I love it. It's fun. <laughs> Discord is another thing that you and I, I think, along with hanging out in the streams, is we're in a lot of the same Discord servers. And I haven't spent a ton of time in the Party Corgi Discord server. I know that you hang out there all the time. Act as a moderator there, full disclosure. Oh, cool. Yeah. And you're also in the Front End Horse Discord. I don't know. Maybe you're in the React Podcast Discord. If not, you should be. I'm not. Maybe I will. It's a fun one. Yeah. What do you enjoy so much about Discord servers? And then how does that feed into all this other stuff you're doing? I think very much about Discord. It as an application thinks much more about communities than other tools out there do. I think a lot of the web dev community, partially in the community I spend the most time in, we had to spend a lot of that in other tools. And I think Discord allows us to kind of really not worry too much about like other flavors of things that are out there, but more so gives us the enablement to have conversations, has the ability to have actual relationships. And I think also gives us the safety compared to other tools out there where like being able to block people or mute people or all these other kind of safety controls that you need to have, I think to make a healthy community, those are the reasons why I like Discord. And that's why I kind of find myself in these Discord communities because they're showing they care about the people who are in there. We're not just another number to their server count. So that's definitely one of the things I appreciate it as well. And I've just made so many friends through Discord. It's really, it's been kind of life-changing for me. So it's really cool. And I think it's such a great piece of technology. 
Cool. Well, as we're closing it out here, are there anything aside from the myriad topics you've already discussed that you're interested or things you want to put out into the world that you're excited about or working on or anything like that? You've touched on a bunch of the stuff that I'm doing right now as like more of my personal interests. I've been doing a lot of 3D animation stuff. I've been learning a little bit more about that, which has been fairly fun. Once again, goes back to things like I thought I would never try to do. Knowing JavaScript has helped me doing some 3D animation things. Knowing at least a base level of JavaScript has allowed me to like learn more about WebGL. And I'm like, wow, there's so much to this that I just didn't know. But it goes back to there's so many exploration opportunities for people with just a base language. And I think if you start learning with JavaScript, it enables you to do a lot. And are you using 3JS to do that? I am using 3JS to do that. Cool. You want to talk about that a little bit? Like what is 3JS for anyone who doesn't know? We haven't really talked about it on the show before. I am still a youngling, a fledgling, in fact, in terms of what I would say 3JS is. But I, I guess I would say like it's a JavaScript library to help you write WebGL code or web graphic library code. And it does a lot of the things for you, but it gives you an abstraction so that you can generate renderings of particular imagery as well as create. I don't think it handles physics by itself. There might be other tools that you integrate with it that does physics logic, but a lot of the tooling out there is mostly around 3D modeling. Yeah, that's cool. That's definitely an area that I've always been interested in, but never really dove into just because like I've still always been at a point where just learning like deployment and, you know, databases and like getting, you know, a full stack application to work. That's been what I've been focusing on so heavily for so long and doing animations. It's always been hard to like justify making the time to learn it. But we've been bringing out lots of like CSS people recently and, and talking more about this stuff. And it's part of my skill set I'm trying to build up. Yeah, if you're doing any 3JS streams, I will be there. I'm considering it. One of the things that is difficult about it is it uses my graphics card and I'm also streaming. So I don't know what the implications of using a graphic intensive tool during a stream will be, but I'm willing to risk it and figure it out. <laughs> awesome. And do you have any last questions, Chris, before we close it out? Do you think dark mode on Netlify is the best feature they've ever released? I can't tell you how many people were excited to see that dark mode was a feature. We have like had an internal like hackathon demos days. Once they saw that they were very excited to see a dark mode be represented. I was like, I mean, I just always assumed it was dark mode to begin with just because of the darker theme. But now that there is a dark mode, I'm very excited for it. I don't know if it's the best feature we've ever released, but I know that it's the most appreciated thing that people have had. <laughs> I learned about it in one of Learn With Jason's, the Learn With Jason's stream. He like clicked on dark mode and I may like screenshotted, tweeted it. I'm like, oh my God, Netlify dark mode. It's a thing. I'm glad people love it. <laughs> Do you love it or no, Chris? I think it's pretty good. The spicy thing is I migrated most of my sites to Vercel a few months ago. Oh, it's fine. Netlify is still pretty good in my eyes. Were your sites ever on Netlify? You've been doing like all sorts of crazy stuff forever. Yeah, my sites all started on Netlify. As I said, Gatsby 2 was when I introduced myself to the industry. I mean like your Redwood apps though, because you've been running your whole Redwood app on like a DigitalOcean server forever. Were you also still running your front end on Netlify? I used to. Never Redwood, but everything before Redwood, yes. Right. I've had my Netlify account for three years. So does that count me as an OG yet? Yeah, I've had mine for probably a little over two years. Like it was when I was in my boot camp, like that was just what I did. I would just use Netlify to like deploy a site, look at it, and then send the link over to, you know, my team lead or whatever. And be like, here it is. I don't need to use localhost now, right? <laughs> I love that. Anthony, do you have any final questions? Yeah. What are some communities that you enjoy hanging out in? I 
full disclosure, work as a moderator on the Party Corgi Discord. That's one of the places that I predominantly hang out in just because I do a lot of moderation there. That space for me was really a space that helped me grow thinking about how do I want to make myself present onto the internet as well as like learn what's going on in the web. I think it was a really good space for me because at the time I wasn't really involved in web communities. And so that's what got me forward. On top of that, I am in the front end horse discord, which is also a fun place. Highly recommend being in there. It's very much a growing community, which is, it's amazing to see because I was part of Party Corgi when it was first growing. And now to see another community growing is really cool. On top of that, I mostly hang out in like the API discords. I like hang out also in the Discord API Discord, which is a mouthful to say, but predominantly I'm just, I'm just hanging out, just chilling. I feel like there's so many discords. I can't actively participate in all of them, but I very much spend my time like reading up and like what's happening is my go-to place when I'm thinking about like going to look for a framework I see if this is something that they offer do they have a space where their community is hanging out in and are there any particular twitch streamers that you're a big fan of as well hmm no (laughs) just yourself you just watch yourself on repeat honestly that's probably the one thing that's really fascinating for me is I don't spend a lot of time on stream. People who I know, like for instance, like Friend and Horse, I spend a lot of time watching their streams. Alex Trost is one of the people I like watch their stream. I watched Jason's stream before I worked at Netlify. I watch it a little less because I have work to do now. As far as people who I watch on Twitch, I actually just enjoy going to different channels and just seeing what is on Twitch as opposed to just being like, I only want to watch programming things. So I spend a lot of time maybe watching video game streamers more than I watch programming streamers. That's probably good. You need to unplug every now and then from the Cody codes. It's also, it's the basis of Twitch is a lot of the video gaming culture. And I think that's been also interesting to see. I tend to learn from them because of the fact that they are doing novel things to me with how do they engage with their community? What are the things that they have interactions in their spaces? What are the rules that they set? I like going to their channels and also like just learning how did they become who they are. I think it's good because it allows me to be like, what are the things that I want my community of people who watch my stream to end up having? Like, what are the healthy sets that I want to adopt? Well, thank you so much, Prince, for being here. This is such a fun conversation. Congrats on the still fairly recent new role. Very happy for you. I think it's a great pickup for them, and you're going to learn a lot and have a, a ton of fun. Why don't you let our listeners know where they can get a hold of you and where you reside on the internet? Pretty much everywhere on the internet, at Maxell, M-A-X-C-E-L-L. So if you go to twitter.com slash Maxell, M-A-X-C-E-L-L, you'll find me. Maxell is my first name, so it's easy to remember for people. That's where I am on Twitter, GitHub, LinkedIn. I stream all the time at prince.dev slash Twitch, which is much easier to remember for people. Anything else you want to talk about before we close it out here? Nope, that's it. I am excited to have been here. I'm very thankful for the two of you all. I just want to say to all the listeners out there, I hope that you continue to do lovely, amazing things. If you ever are like, I want to start a Twitch stream, you can at me at Twitter, at Maxell. You can let me know like, hey, I'm about to do this Twitch stream for the very first time. Or if you've done it several times and you just want somebody to view, you can still at me and I'd be happy to watch. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
Thank you. Bye.